This podcast began over a year ago with the question, how can crisis lead to change? How can we build a bridge to the future? As we dare to hope that we are at least at the beginning of the end of the crisis stage of the pandemic, this question of how we learn and renew, well, it should be paramount. Yet, there's also a sense that people just want to return to normal, that economies need to focus on restarting, not restructuring, that the lesson of the pandemic is about national protection, not international cooperation. So will we build a bridge to the future or simply wait on our side of the river and cross our fingers that our hopes and ideals won't be washed away by the tide of history? There can be few people better suited to answering that question than my latest guest. Welcome to the podcast that tries to make sense of our new reality. This is Bridges to the Future with Matthew Taylor, brought to you by the RSA. Ian Golden is Professor of Globalisation and Development at the University of Oxford and the Director of the Oxford Martin Research Programmes on Technological and Economic Change, Future of Work and Future of Development. From 2006 to 2016, he was the founding director of the Oxford Martin School. He is the author of a daunting list of books, of which the latest is Rescue, From Global Crisis to a Better World. Ian, how are you? Fine, thanks, and I hope you're well too. This book, it's a fascinating book. Please don't take this as a, as a kind of criticism, Ian, but it's got a feeling of it, that it was written in a rush. It's got a kind of pace to it. You know, you say things a number of times, not in a way that's kind of problematic, but it's almost like there's, there's almost a kind of stream of consciousness quality to this book, despite the fact that it's absolutely jam-packed with facts and analysis and... All of that feels that it was a book written in a rush. And as I say, I'm not saying that in a disparaging sense, just that there is this kind of urgent feel to it. So why was it so important for you to get this book out now? It was written more rapidly than any book I've done. I think I did it in about nine months, which is certainly a record for me. And I felt it was urgent because I really want to get the message out before the pandemic ends and we all revert to our old ways, that that would be a dangerous idea that going back to where we were before guarantees a whole series of future disasters, more pandemics, etc. And it was that sense of urgency, which is indeed something which I felt in writing the book, and I think accounts for the speed at which I did it and, and the tone of it. Yeah, I noticed the first sentence of the concluding chapter in the book starts like this. You say, despite the tragic death, suffering and sadness, the pandemic could go down in history as the event that rescued humanity. This notion that we've reached an inflection point. Now, a lot of people say that, and indeed I've argued it a lot over the last year, the RSA has. But it's probably worth remembering that people have been kind of saying this for a long time. People are always kind of saying you know, we've reached this kind of moment of no return or this particular inflection point, this kind of, every politician always says every election, this is the most important election ever. Uh, Why is it in that you think that this is a point of inflection that is different from the claims that people always make that this is the kind of the moment? I think what's happened over the past 30 or so years is uh, the development of an increasingly complex and integrated world system 
which is more and more unstable. And although there are huge upsides to this integration, elimination of poverty, increasing life expectancies and so on, there's also growing downsides, the super spreading of risks like pandemics, as well as the unintended consequences like climate change. And so I think we have reached the point where for the first time really in human history, the world could go seriously off track in terms of mass deaths, mass extinction, for example, which has never really been a possibility except in world wars with atomic explosions. That is becoming more intense. And I think we need to recognize that the risks of pandemics are rising. So there's many reasons why risks are rising, opportunities are rising too. And that creates the sort of crossroads time, this time where we need to change. I think of it very much like I think of the Second World War and comparing the First and Second World War. But I think it's important to be clear about this. I think you want to say the pandemic is the proximate cause, but it's the proximate cause in the sense that there were these other underlying issues. Because actually, historically, it looks as though what people tend to do after pandemics is just to want to kind of move on. And indeed, in a way, the most interesting thing when we think back to the Spanish flu is how little it's kind of seen before this pandemic. It had been seen as a historically significant event, despite the fact that you know, such a large proportion of the world's population were wiped out by it. So it's not the pandemic itself. It's the fact that the pandemic comes at a point at which we were reaching these particular moments of inflection anyway. I I want to be clear, that is your argument, yeah? That's absolutely the case. And the pandemic is a trigger moment. It allows us to reflect. It's led to massive changes in our own lives, in the way that governments behave. It's created this inflection point. But yes, there's a whole series of other reasons for this. And the comparison with Spanish flu is interesting. I mean, people didn't even know that was a global pandemic at the time. The information flows were so weak. Indeed, it's called the Spanish flu because the Spanish talked about it, but actually it started in Texas. So that which might have killed up to a third of the world's population was much more dramatic than this, but it wasn't understood. And the difference now is we really do understand the dynamics of what's going on, and therefore we have a greater responsibility to act. And of course, part of this argument about the pandemic as an inflection point goes to issues that have been highlighted by the pandemic. And let's talk about a couple of those. So one is inequality and the way in which the impact of the pandemic, the morbidity rate has varied from group to group, and particular communities have been particularly hard hit by it. But there's also a second dimension, which I think your book was important in getting me to fully understand, which is that even though some developing countries have not suffered as badly from COVID as some of the rich world countries have, or at least have not yet, in terms of the economic impact, the developing countries are likely to be hit very, very hard by this. Yes, both are absolutely the case. What the pandemic has done is exacerbate and reveal inequalities within our countries and between them. Within our countries, we've seen it in these vastly differential rates of mortality, who's died with BAME groups and people in particular localities, particularly negatively affected, as well as old people, of course. But globally, the impact has been of rising income inequality. And there's a number of reasons for that. One is that the technology firms have done incredibly well. And with that, stock markets and the holder of assets and stocks, as well as houses, have done really well. 
those that can work remotely and carry on their lives, as I think you and I can, have done relatively well compared to those that have to go to work, not only putting themselves at a health risk, but also if they don't go to work, losing their incomes and whole sectors like hospitality closing down with very differential impacts. People that work particularly in those sectors, not least women, particularly negatively affected. And then globally, many more people will die of starvation than will die of COVID-19. And while the rich countries have found $16 trillion for themselves to support their workers and their firms to mitigate the impact of the crisis, developing countries just don't have that space. And so the number of people living in absolute poverty is estimated to have increased by something like 125 million people over this period of time. And that dramatic global impact is still being played out. And of course, we're seeing it in India, particularly at the moment. So in the focus at the moment in relation to kind of the developing world is all around access to vaccines. And that continues to be a very important issue. But I think the thing that your book really drove home to me is that whilst countries that have got strong currencies and strong kind of financial institutions, a capacity to borrow, will be able to finance the recovery, that absolutely isn't the case. And that actually over the last year, not only do we have the issue of getting vaccines to the developing world, but aid, and of course, regrettably, Britain has been at the forefront of this lamentable trend, aid has actually declined over the last year. Yes, it's an absolute tragedy that at a time when it's never been needed more, as people have fallen into desperate poverty, that we're actually cutting our aid budgets, not only in the UK actively cutting it from 0.7 to 0.5, but also because aid in the rich countries is calculated as a share of the size of the economy, as the economy is contracted in 2020 around all the rich countries, aid contracted. So less money is going. And this is in big contrast to the financial crisis where there was a massive aid package. Even institutions like the IMF are not lending as much. And of course, other actors like the credit rating agencies and others haven't helped. So we need a big resolution of debt. We need to urgently send more money to developing countries and of course send vaccines as well. But that isn't happening. And the G7 and G20 have not stepped up to the plate as they had in the financial crisis. Oh, that's a really important point. And I was working in in number 10, when we had the Glen Eagles G7, G20 event and you know, major progress in relation to debt and aid. And there's a danger that people think in a way that work's been done, but it has to be refreshed and renewed for the new challenges that have been created by the pandemic. Let's turn to a second kind of dimension, a second resonance, as it were, between the pandemic and, and what we need to do beyond it which relates to kind of issues of risk and resilience. And one of the things in which you point out with reasonable modesty, I felt in the book, was that you are amongst those people who had consistently said in your assessments of global risk that a pandemic was pretty high up the list. But it was interesting to read, for example, the World Economic Forum, which not only failed to put financial contagion anywhere near its list of risks in 2007, but it failed to put pandemics anywhere near the top of its list of risks in 2019. So what can we learn about risk, Ian? I think those cases, and there's so many others that I cite in the book, highlight the fact that the risk community really hasn't got hold of where risk is coming from. They use rearview mirrors, they use groupthink, they use surveys, which really are asking people what they've read in the papers today. And 
that has to change. I think we need to understand the new dynamics of risk, what I call the butterfly defect of globalization, systemic risk, contagion, how the super spreaders of the goods of globalization, like airport hubs, like financial centers, like cyber systems, also are the super spreaders of the bads, and stop thinking in risk silos because these things just cascade across the silos. So it needs new thinking. At the national level, it means that we need to give much greater attention to it. The fact that we spend thousands of times more money on military preparedness than we do on pandemic preparedness just shows us to what extent we're looking in the rearview mirror because any intelligence agency will tell you that the risk of a pandemic is a much greater threat to our lives than a military attack, for example. The fact that we do so little to prepare our companies against risk is part of that as well, as well as individuals. So we need to do what we do with our house insurance or other risk and set aside more resources for it. And we also need to understand that these risks come across national borders. So we need to work much more aggressively with others to reinforce the system, whether it's to stop pandemics or to stop climate change at the global level. So this question of risk takes us to another important argument in the book, Ian, which is around international cooperation. And you're at pains to emphasise in the book that you're not anti-globalisation. I mean, not only are you not anti-globalisation for kind of political reasons, but you think it's an entirely impractical idea that we would kind of reverse it. And although there's a lot of talk of globalisation being in retreat, your view is despite, you know, Trump's rhetoric over trade and and various kind of shorter term things, in the long term, globalisation is here to stay and that it's a good thing. The problem for you with globalisation is not globalization per se, but it's the weakness of the international institutions that should be there to ensure that globalization ultimately benefits humanity. Well, it's both international and national. You know, I do believe that globalization is a hugely progressive force and doing many of the the things that we admire about the progress in the world have come from flows across national borders, whether it's ideas like the Me Too movement or whether it's ideas on human rights or the vaccines and things. These are all aspects of globalization, as indeed is is all the digital flows we have. But at the same time, it is very bad and it's it's very ugly. And unless we manage that at both the national and international level, the risk is that the negatives overwhelm the positives. For every container that comes to our shores with something good, there's a risk that something bad is smuggled in it, a weapon or something else. For every cyber conversation we have, there's a risk of a cyber attack. For every flight we get on, there's the risk of uh, pandemic contagion. And so these things, we don't stop our flights, but we need to manage them more effectively. And that indeed requires cooperation. Not everything requires global cooperation. A lot of problems could be solved by cities working together, by companies working together, or small sets of countries. 12 countries account for something like 85% of carbon emissions into the atmosphere. But those key actors need to be part of the solution. And of course, this also applies in finance and not least tax evasion, where small islands become a big part of the problem and of the solution. So we need to manage globalization. What we manage depends on what the problem is that we're trying to solve. Yeah, and I thought, Ian, this was a really important point that I hadn't really come across before, and it's really changed my thinking. Because I kind of get all this, and I've spoken to many people on this podcast over the last year about the importance of strengthening international institutions, and of course the World Health Organization is the one that always springs to mind first of all. 
I'm also then aware of people that I know who work in and around the United Nations and who, you know, have their head in their hands often about the challenges of getting things done and creating consensus. And we know about the problems of Security Council, for example. One of the things that you argue in the book is that we shouldn't always try to make sure that every single country in the world is part of every single conversation. Because actually, most big issues, if you really want to get change in relation to them, you don't need to have every country in the world. You have this phrase C20, C30, C40, which describes the 20 most important nations in relation to a particular issue, the 30 most important companies in relation to a particular issue, and the 40 most important cities. I thought that was a, a really interesting approach. And it convinced me that you could get that kind of group together. Are we thinking enough about the, the need for, for that kind of institutional innovation, which is get the people in the room who can actually make a difference? Don't worry about getting it ticked off by every single nation in the world. No, I don't think we are thinking enough about these creative solutions. And there, there are two sort of reasons for it that we need to be aware of. The one is the danger that we saw in the Iraq war of these coalitions of the willing. So that highlights the point of legitimacy, that we really need to ensure that when we are creating representative groups that can solve much of the problem, that they legitimate. And that's a fair concern. And the second is that you don't want only the dominant actors in the room. So let's, for example, take climate change. If you only had the biggest emitters that we're doing, it's like sort of getting the mafia bosses in to write the criminal code. You also want the affected represented, not only the affecting. I believe if you had, for example, Bangladesh and the Maldives, both who will be dramatically affected by climate change as part of a solution, that begins to build legitimacy. Pandemics are the exception to my argument, because pandemics can literally come from anywhere on earth, the poorest village in the poorest country, or the richest lab in the richest country. And that's why pandemics are the biggest challenge we face. But we have the WHO, and we need to fix it. One of the reasons that your argument really went home to me was was that I think it's the London, it's the LSE that today has published a report that shows that just 20 companies are the source of more than half the single-use plastic items thrown away in the UK. And so that's kind of why that light went on in my head. And I thought, well, you know, the government could spend ages and ages trying to get every single company to sign up to a bunch of regulations, or it could name the 20 companies that are responsible for most of this and get them around the table and say, look, you know, you're the ones who are doing this and you're the ones who are going to act first, and then we'll worry about the, everybody else. I mean, I think that's that just struck me as the kind of new thinking that we have, because the idea that we can't act on these issues until we can get institutions, cumbersome institutions like the United Nations to achieve consensus, that worries me in terms of our kind of sense of urgency. Absolutely. The thing is also, it's an excuse for not doing anything. You know, people basically kick it upstairs and say, well, that's a problem for global governance, knowing that nothing will happen in global governance. So I think it's also an argument why we need to build widening circles of activity, whether it's from our towns and communities, whether it's from our companies or cities, to get things going and build adherence around that. So when we talk about international action, we have to talk about China. And my sense is that your view is that whatever our misgivings might be about China, about what's happened in Hong Kong, about the Uyghurs, about several other elements of Chinese policy, in the end, we have no choice but to try to engage China as a partner in the tackling of these major challenges. But Ian, just, you know, if you're a global leader and you're faced with 
human rights organizations and indeed, you know, pe- people themselves in China desperately saying, look, you need to stand up for us. But at the same time, knowing that you ain't going to get an agreement on climate change or anything else that's worthwhile unless China is involved. How do you deal with that as a politician? I think we need to recognize the legitimate concerns of human rights and other groups and have very serious conversations with China about those. But there's no global problem that can be solved without Chinese participation. And China wants to be part of the solution, whether it's stopping climate change or stopping pandemics. And so I think it's it's really imperative that if we want to stop pandemics, slow climate change, and create a more harmonious world, that we learn to both work very closely with China to those ends and have robust conversations with it. Now, I was involved in the anti-apartheid movement, and I strongly supported sanctions against South Africa because at that time, I thought tactically it was the right thing to do, and it did contribute to the transformation of South Africa. But I do not believe that that is how you will get change happening in China at this time. I think it will be through engaging China as a serious equal in a global discussion and also a collaborator on certain things like in ensuring the transformation to a zero carbon economy. Yeah, I I think it involves, doesn't it, in a kind of shift in the argument, which says the approach that says to China or other countries, sort yourselves out in terms of reaching Western levels of, you know, what the West approves of in terms of levels of kind of democracy and human rights, despite the failings of our own system. And then we'll kind of engage with you is probably the wrong order that it's through engagement that countries with China in particular, through engagement, through wanting to be part of global arrangements, that it's more likely in the end to feel that its human rights frailties are undermining its credibility as a global partner. But I don't think it's, I mean, I think in real politic term, it's engagement that probably leads to the possibility of being able to address these other issues. But it's not an easy argument to make, let's face it. Now, you are a deep thinker. And as a deep thinker, we, you know, I'm saying we, because I'm suggesting that I'm a deep thinker as well. But, you know, we tend to view things in these broad terms, the structural terms and the tide of history. But yet, events, coincidences, individuals do make a difference. And it's very hard, isn't it, right now, in very hard not to feel that Joe Biden's success is absolutely critical to the future of the world. That if he seemed to do well, if he wins his midterms, if he gets re-elected or a successor following in his mould gets elected, then we really have hope, not just about America, but about the world. But if Biden goes off track, if he gets uh, terrible midterms, if Trump or Trump's the new Trump replaces him, then it's very hard to feel hope. Am I wrong in kind of putting so many eggs in the Biden basket? Well, I think Biden is one of the very positive signs of change. I think Biden getting into power reflects the failures of the populist approach of Trump and the divisive approach. But of course, Trump still got almost 10 million more votes than he did in the previous election. So really, uh, you know, very divided electorate. But I think you're right to to place great emphasis on it. And what he's doing is is really radical in terms of the change. But I think it also speaks to something else, which my study of the Second World War has taught me, which is, you know, how was it that Churchill, six weeks after the end of the war, which he had really won, 
a huge hero, not only in Britain, but globally. How was it that he lost power to this sort of rather bland, almost unknown previously person, Clem Attlee? And I think that's also about what the appetite of society is for change at these times of crisis and the need to pay back to those that have made the sacrifice, the promise of a better future in real concrete terms. And I think it is that that, that led to Churchill losing the election then and could not commit to delivering on the welfare state and the beverage report. And I think it's that as well, which has delivered Biden. People want change. People really do have this hunger. And this goes back to, to the beginning of our conversation of this being an inflection point, a time when change can be made. And if we miss this opportunity, I think it won't come back for a very long time. But we're a bit behind the curve already, aren't we, if you take that argument? Because as you point out in the book, in the work that was done on the welfare state post-Second World War, was commissioned in 1941. You know, the work had been done during the crisis, even by people who had no reason to be certain that they weren't actually going to be overrun by the Nazis. So this work has not been done. We have to do it now. So it, it does the Second World War parallel. Is it one that should make us feel optimistic? Shouldn't we feel, well, we're already not where those people were? They understood, even as they were fighting, that they had to build a better world. That's right, Matthew. And that, that's the reason for my sense of urgency. We need to get on with it. And I think, you know, Biden's doing it, so it can be done. What is remarkable, as you've pointed to, is the fact that while the bombs were dropping on Whitehall, they were, and, you know, while they were building blockhouses around the UK to, to repel Nazi invaders, they were also planning the New World Order. They were planning the welfare state domestically, a total revolution domestically, and the Bretton Woods institutions, the UN and Marshall Plan. You know, the, the Bretton Woods Conference was a year before the end of the war. And people take an immense risk to fly to Bretton Woods from the UK, Keynes and others. So you're absolutely right about these things were happening during the war. And I think that's why I feel the sense of urgency now. We need to get on with it. And we need to recognize that once the pandemic's over, there'll be a complacency, there'll be a roaring 20s. And what we really don't want is a repeat of the roaring 20s that ends like that one did, even though, of course, we all want to have a good time. What about business, Ian? You're somebody who is often asked to speak to corporates and those corporate leaders. I find myself always confused, really, about how to feel about business. On the one hand, there are all these signs that business is getting climate change, that money is starting to flow into renewables, more and more corporations have their kind of ESG statements, they have their sense of purpose. So on the one hand, you this all seems really good. But then when you look at what companies actually do, you know, when you look at the incredible accretion of power and wealth in the tech companies, and you look at the growth of share buybacks, which are simply devices to enrich executives, then it, it doesn't look so. It's as if there's a kind of massive gap between the kind of rhetoric about a kind of enlightened capitalism and what its actual day-to-day -day instincts are, given the nature of the markets. Where do you stand on how confident we should be that the kind of masters of capitalism get this? I'm with you on this. I think there's a lot of greenwashing around. There's a lot of talk. But when you see it, the actions, uh, there's much less, whether it's what you know, Jeff Bezos <laughs> pays his workers or what others are doing. And that 
really points to the fact that although these are great noble statements and we need to be careful about the what we consume and where we invest and ensure that we do as good a job as possible in, for example, ensuring that we're not investing in coal or that we're not investing in bad practices and our goods are not sourced in places we don't want them to be sourced in, while we need to hope that companies are doing the right thing and pressure them to do the right thing, we need to accept also that companies on their own will not make these decisions without very strict regulatory environments and the scrutiny of the public sector, of rules and regulations, and of information. We need a transparency that bites. And of course, unless we have that information, we won't act on it. So it really does take a combination of consumer awareness, government action, and companies doing the right thing. And we can't rely simply on companies doing the right thing. And of course, many companies aren't even listed. And we also have to be careful that as the companies we think are moving, let's say we managed to convince BP and Shell in the UK to disinvest from coal. We don't want to find that Gazprom and Saudi Aramco and others are simply increasing their share of the market. So how you manage this is not only a national question, but also is a question which goes back to the of international coordination. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think in your kind of C20, C30, C40 point is relevant here, which is that you know, actually, the big tech companies, the big finance houses, the big commodity traders, we do need to kind of focus on those really large strategically important businesses and their leaders in terms of the fact that we're not going to create the world that we want unless those really big players do change what they do and and, and they have to kind of step up to the plate. Let's talk about something else which I think is of critical importance, you know, and that's COP26. This, again, is another moment. And if we are to look back and say that in some sense, despite, as you put in the book, despite the tragedy and the suffering, the pandemic offered this opportunity for renewal, one of the things we might say is it was very fortunate that in the light of COVID and what it taught us about the need for international cooperation to understand risks, the need to think about long-term resilience, we then had this gathering in the UK, which whatever one might say about the Johnson government is a is a, a country which is amongst the leaders in terms of its commitments around carbon. So, how important is COP twenty six? How hopeful are you? And are there are there particular things that we should look out for in terms of whether or not it, it lives up to its potential? COP twenty six is vitally important. A huge amount rests on it. We need to translate into action the promises that were made in Paris. And this is an opportunity to do so. We've seen massive step forward during the pandemic in the US with the Biden administration. We've seen them in Europe with the Green New Deal in Europe. We've seen it in South Korea, in a number of other countries, and it's very strong commitments from China too. So there's commitments. Now we need to front end this, and we also need to deliver on the promise that was made in Paris that has not yet been delivered on, which is $100 billion a year to developing countries as part of, I think, what will now be a recovery from the pandemic, putting the SDGs back on track, but with a Green Deal. What we need to be very wary of as well, and that's why COP26 also is doubly important, is that after the financial crisis, the stimulus packages basically led to a massive spike in emissions and greenhouse gases because stimulus is often spent on infrastructure, on concrete, on cement, on steel. And that, of course, is very, very carbon intensive. So how you design a recovery package from the pandemic while achieving the ambitions 
of reducing carbon emissions becomes vital. And that's where I think there'll be enormous potential for new ideas in finance, in technology, in collaboration, and a renewal of commitments. Yeah, so the next few months leading up to COP26 are absolutely critical. And again, in keeping with the argument of your book, we've got to be clear about what our priorities are in relation to what comes out of that. Now, I just want to raise one thing that I felt was slightly missing from the book, Ian. So, you know, you cover an enormous amount of ground, but one way I think we can understand where we are in the world, and particularly the kind of pathological elements of the world, like the rise of populism, is that there are three systems which are central to the kind of liberal democratic social market way of doing things. And all three of them, they are kind of intractable and crisis bound. So one is capitalism, and we talk about that, and you've talked about that in the book and the need to kind of think about new, more sustainable, more equitable models of capitalism. The second is the nation state. And again, you, you know, throughout your career, but in, in this book, again, you, you talk about the importance of getting the right balance of national sovereignty and international cooperation and the responsibility of nation states. But the third, it seems to me, and is, is representative democracy. I believe that representative democracy is no longer capable of generating the legitimacy that is needed for the kinds of decisions that, that we need to be taken. And that's partly to do with the fact that it's institutionally out of date and, you know, whether it's the kind of electoral college in America or party funding or our own absurd electoral system in England or lack of constitution or House of Lords or whatever it might be. You know, it's partly because these institutions have not been updated, but it's also that in relation to modern expectations, the idea that legitimacy is secured by voting every four years on manifestos that contain hundreds of policies, and that's a sufficient basis. And that's why I'm a great fan of, for example, deliberative democracy. And we've seen the growth of deliberative democracy all around the world in recent years. So do you think that you're underplaying slightly here in your analysis of what's gone wrong and what needs to be renewed, the problem with representative democracy no longer being a sufficient basis for the legitimacy we need to make the tough decisions for the long term? Well, there's certainly major shortcomings. And in the Oxford Martin Commission for Future Generations report now for the long term, we look at this question in some detail. I think what the book aims to do, and the reason you know, I, I, I cover many, many issues like the future of cities, the future of work and inequality, stopping crises, etc., but not this one, because I haven't got the answers for it. I think it's a massive issue. I think we need a much more layered system of democracy and a much greater devolution of power to the lowest possible levels. And I also think that the constituency system is not built for the long term representation, because what we're seeing is local interests trumping out national interests all the time on different issues. And that means that anything that evolves across a nation gets stopped at the local level. But if we have concrete solutions, I think if we have an ability to do them, we should certainly get on with it. And I look forward to reading your writing on this. Yeah, I, I think, as I say, on the one hand, we simply need to recognise there are lots of problems with our democratic systems which just need to be resolved, and it's a scandal they haven't. I mean, look, Trump lost. I mean, he really lost. But, you know, he could have won with several million fewer voters than Biden, for example, and that would have put the world on a completely different course as a consequence of a simple failure 
to update the democratic system in America. But on the other hand, I do think there is scope for different solutions, particularly around forms of deliberation and the more direct engagement of citizens in decision-making. So yes, this is an obsession of mine and I'll continue with it. And I guess the only reason I'm raising it is it's not a, it's not a critique of the book because the book is absolutely brilliant. It is that I think it's interesting that sometimes this question of democratic decay and renewal is seen as a side issue to these bigger structural questions. And I really don't think it is. I think it's very often the first and biggest hurdle to us getting towards the kind of conversations we need to have. But you and I can carry on debating that into the future. Rescue from Global Crisis to a Better World is available now online, but much, much better for you to go to your local bookshop and support that and buy a copy there. I can strongly recommend it. As Ian has just said, it's full of fascinating stuff about cities and about work and about global justice and institutional renewal. So Ian, thank you for writing the book and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Matthew, for inviting me to be with you. That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future. We'll be back soon with more insights and analysis. But if you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review it in your podcast app. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor. This was a Tempo and Talker production for the RSA. We are the RSA. We enable the game changers of today to shift systems, challenge norms, and create impact where it's needed most. Visit the rsa.org slash approach to find out how. And let's make change happen.